0: Hello and welcome to Python Bytes, where we deliver Python news and headlines directly to your earbuds. This is episode 222, recorded February 24th, 2021. I'm Michael Kennedy.
1: And I'm Brian Ockett.
0: And I'm Greg Herrera. (laughs) Hey, Greg
1: Herrera. Welcome,
0: welcome. We have a special guest. Thank you. Welcome, um... Part of the Talk Python team and now part of the Python Bytes podcast. It's great to have you here.
2: Happy to be here.
0: Thank you. Yeah, it's it's great. Also making us happy is uh, and many users throughout the world is Linode. Linode is sponsoring this episode and you can get a $100 credit for your next project at pythonbytes.fm slash Linode. Check them out. It really helps support the show. So, uh, Greg, you want to just tell people really quickly about yourself before we dive into the topics?
2: Yeah, before I joined uh, uh, the team at Python Bytes, I had run a a data analytics consulting firm where we built data warehouses and did um, data science type things. Uh, It was called business business intelligence at the time. And um, as as I was learning, we we started running into a lot of open source um, users, in particular Python. And um, so I dove into the Python ecosystem when I sold that company uh, to get up to speed Mm -hmm. on how things are going to be done in the in the future. Um, That's awesome. One of those widely? Wayne
0: Gretzky moments, right?
2: Yes, exactly.
0: <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, awesome. It's great to have you here. So I want to jump right into our first topic. We have a lot of things to cover today, so uh, I'll try to not not delay too long, but I've got to tell you, I'm a big fan of AWS S3. I'm a big fan of some of the services of AWS in general, right? Don't run the main stuff over there, but many of the things Many of the services and APIs I use that said, I feel like the S3 or the Boto API, the Boto three API rather is, is one of the worst programming interfaces I've ever used in my life. I mean, it is, (laughs) it is so frustratingly bad. Um, The way you work with it is you go through and you say, I'd like to talk to Amazon. And then you say, I would like to get a service. And instead of creating a class or, um, a sub-module or something like that, that would be very natural in Python. What you do is you go to a function say, give me the service and you give it a string, like I want quote S3 or I want quote EC2 or quote some other thing. And then you get a generic object back and you have no idea what you got back, what you can do to it. You start passing stuff over to it. Sometimes it takes keyword arguments, but sometimes you just put dictionaries which are one of the values of a keyword. There's just all this weirdness around it. So every time I interact with them, I'm like, oh, I'm just probably doing this wrong. I have no idea of even what type I'm working with because it's like this bizarro API that is like levels of indirection. Because it's, it's generated at runtime, or at least dynamically, right? There's not static Python that is it. It like looks at the service you're asking for and then like dynamic up thing. So I feel like there's a lot of work over there that could be done to just, you know, put a proper wrapper at a minimum on top of those types of things. That said, wouldn't it be nice if your editor knew better than AWS is willing to help you with? So we've got this really cool library that I want to talk about. This was sent over by Michael Lerner. And the idea is you can add type annotations as an add-on to the Boto library. So then you get full-on autocomplete. So let me give you a little example here. For those who are in the live stream, uh, you can see it, but those are not, you can just like, uh, I'll just describe it. So for example, if I want to talk to S3, like I said, I say Boto3.client, quote S3, as opposed to quote EC2. And what comes back is a base client, figure it out. It it can do things, it can get a waiter and a paginator, and it has the possibility to see exceptions about it. And that's it, right? That's all you know. And this is the API you get when you're working with things like PyCharm and VS Code and MyPy and other uh, type annotation uh, validators, right? Linters and whatnot. They get nothing. So if you go and use this Bodo library, this Bodo type annotations, there's no runtime behavior. It just reads, I think they're PYI files. I can't remember what the final letter is, but it's like these kind of like a C++ header file. It just says these things have these, these fields, but no implementation. They actually come from you know, the Bodo library. So if we just go and import you know, from Bodo3 type annotations.s3 import client. And we say s3 colon client equals this weird factory thing. Boom, all of a sudden you get all the features of s3. You can say S3. dot, And it says create bucket, get object, create multi part upload. Hey, guess what? Here's all the parameters that are super hard to find in the documentation. Thank you, Michael, for sending this over. I already rewrote one of my apps to use this. It's glorious. Nice. What do you guys so, think?
1: So, does it, ch- did, you said you rewrote the app. Does it really change?
0: No, I, well, Let me rephrase that. I wanted to make a change in the way one of my apps that was extremely S3 heavy, it basically shuffles a bunch of stuff around and like on on using S3 and uh, some other stuff. And I wanted to change it. But before I changed it, I'm like, well, let me um, fancy it up with all these types. And then it'll tell me whether I'm doing it right or wrong and whatnot. So now if I have a function, I can say it takes an S3.client. And my pie will say, no, 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 you gave that an S3 service locator or whatever the heck. There's like all these different things yeah. you can sort of get that will do similar but not the same stuff. So... Uh, yeah. Anyway, fantastic, fantastic addition because this really should be coming from Bodo 3. I, I just don't, I feel, you know, maybe it was a little bit harsh on them at the beginning, but the reason <laughs> I, I, it's like one of these things where you, you write a function, you just say, well, take star args, star star KW args, and you don't bother to write the documentation. You're like, well, how in the world am I supposed to know what to do with this? Like, there's, it could so easily help me. And it's just like not, right? Like, that, those could be keyword arguments with default values or whatever. So, uh, like, I feel like, you know, a company as large as Amazon, they could probably justify writing like typed wrappers around these things that, that really help people and help MyPi and all these other like validation tools. But until then, Boto3 type annotations. It's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Nice. <sighs> <laughs> oh, and uh, Dean also uh, threw out really quick before we move on to the next item, Brian, um, that Boto types can literally, well, not literally. Save my life. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I agree, Dean. It's like, oh, sorry. Did I like take down that EC2 machine? I didn't mean that. I wanted something else. I wanted to delete the bucket. Sorry. Anyway,
1: awesome. <laughs> Interesting, literally, uh, translate transition. Yes, actually. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, so, uh, yeah. So I want to cover code reviews. Brian, and... you're
0: such a romantic.
1: <laughs> so this was uh, suggested by uh, Milos, I think, and uh, written by Michael Lynch. And it's an article called uh, a, a, how to make your code reviewer fall in love with you. And just, oh, my gosh, it's got great content, but the title, yuck. Um, uh, Maybe and, you're
0: not a romantic. I mean, <laughs> come on.
1: Well, I mean, I like my coworkers, but, you know, uh, anyway, even in the in the article, it says it says even uh, your reviewer will literally fall in love with you. Well, um. <laughs> I, they won't literally fall in love with you. They might figuratively appreciate your code review. Yeah, I mean, they about,
0: may, but it could be an HR issue.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> I don't go there.
1: Um, anyway, uh, but I do want to cover. There's there's some really great tips in here because actually, um, being nice to your uh, being nice to your reviewers will help you. Uh, immensely and and one of the things he covers is just value your reviewers time and there's and i just put a code review in this morning just to try this out try some of these techniques and uh it only takes like an extra 30 seconds maybe a minute to do it right and uh and it saves everybody on your team time so it's worth worth it so let's cover a few of these um one of them is uh don't just check for mistakes um imagine that you're reading the code review for the first time so you need to be the reviewer of your code first. Uh, so that's that's actually really important, and I I encourage that with everybody on my team because there's times where the disc, you know it just doesn't uh, there's stuff in there that's not it doesn't make sense. And why is that? Why is that related to the thing? I guess we'll we'll get there. Okay. Well, so- and you
0: could also you know if you're in a rush, what you say can come across feeling unkind or inconsiderate. And you're just like, I didn't really mean to be inconsiderate. I just like, I've got four of these and I have 20 minutes. I just got to get it, you know, but that's not how it's received. (laughs) You know, it may be received really differently. So, you know, from that perspective, right?
1: Yeah. And even, even if the code review itself only takes somebody a few minutes to review your code change, it's interrupted their, their day by a half an hour, at least. So respect that entire time. Uh, One of the uh, next suggestions is a write clear change log description. So, uh, right. And, and, and he, he describes this a little bit. One of the things is, um, it's not just what you changed, but it it's what your change achieves and why you made the change. That's the, why is always way more important than what you did. I can look at the code change. I should be able to look at the code change and know, know what you changed. So don't describe that too much in the, in the list at the top. Uh, next, uh, narrowly that I want to talk about narrowly scope your changes. So, I uh, think I' skipped down. Uh, here's what
0: I did this week.
1: Yeah, have a look. yeah. <laughs> um, now, it's
0: easy to do that. like I haven't checked in for a while, so here's what I did. Yeah, no, like, no, no, no. And no.
1: actually, this is something that I even caught myself doing yesterday i uh, I noticed that a test uh, um, really kind of needed refactored because it I needed to add a test to a, to a test module. and there was um there was some there was the way the entire test module was arranged. I could rearrange the, uh, the the fixtures so that it would run like three times faster um, if I, I changed the setup and in, in common setup and stuff like that. I really wanted to do that, but that's not what I really needed to do. What I really needed to do was just add a test. So I added the test, and that code review went through this morning, and then today I'm going to do a cleanup of trying to make things faster. So separating them is important. Also, another thing is uh, separating... Uh, uh, functional and non-functional changes. So you're like, in this case, you're going a, you're adding a test to a module. You got like, um, uh, uh, you notice that the, the formatting is just a nightmare. Um, just write that down on your to-do list, either do that merge first, clean it up and then merge it and then add your change or add your change and then clean it up. Do them in two merge requests. It'll be a lot easier for people to figure out uh break up large change lists if you've got if you've been working for a while maybe you should merge them in a few time ty- a few you know in pieces if it's if it's like a thousand lines of code and eighty files, that's too big. That's just way too big. Uh, and then there's a, there's actually quite a few uh, chunks in there that talk about basically being a nice person. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, respond graciously. I'm just going to pick out one: Re- respond graciously to critiques, and that's the hardest one for me. If somebody picks apart your code, they're not attacking you. They're talking about the code, and they want to own the code also. So think about those as as uh, as. Is the the reviewer wanting to uh, make the code theirs as well as yours, and try to respond well, and don't get too defensive about it? Because fights in code reviews are not fun.
0: Yeah, and often there's a power differential, right? A senior person is reviewing a junior person's type of work, so that's always true. Yeah, 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 for sure. Greg, as someone who's relative to say Brian and me, a little bit newer at uh, Oops. at <laughs> at Python, um, what are your thoughts on this code review stuff? I mean, I. I know you don't necessarily write a lot of code in teams that gets reviewed, but do you, know, you see this as helpful, stressful?
2: Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's it's important to do the if you have the interpersonal part of it right, like the both they they trust each other, the the you know the reviewer and the reviewee, it's going to go a lot more smoothly. It's 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 a, we're in this together, a shared fate, uh, and and it'll go as opposed to uh conflict, um it's gonna it's gonna be much easier. Yeah, for sure.
0: Brian, quick comment from Magnus. I believe a code review should really review the current code, not just the diff lines, so the whole code comes out better after review. Yeah.
1: Yeah, definitely. Uh it, yeah. it depends
0: on how big it is, right? Like maybe like that little sub module or, or something right it could be too massive but yeah yeah impossible. and actually
1: this is this is one of the times where I kind of put put on the brakes and just say you're right we do need to fix that and and put it on the to-do list but it shouldn't stop a merge just because um, things are yeah. yeah
0: Brian does your team do internal PRs or do yeah. you just do you just make changes
1: no everything goes through a PR yeah I I vary right sometimes I do some
0: all right Greg you're you're up next on uh, uh yeah yeah thank you here. Speaking of repos and merges and PRs and all that stuff,
2: (laughs) we thank Hector Munoz for sending uh, this suggestion in. It um it started with a response to a blog um, on Tidelift uh uh, by Tidelift about hey if I'm making a decision on on which uh, library to use how 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 can I uh, gauge the maturity of that library. So um, yeah, that's uh, a
0: question I get all the time from people. Like, hey, I'm new to Python. I want to know which library I should use. How do I know if the library is a, a good choice or a bad choice? And so, there's a lot of different metrics you might use, but maybe they're hard to find, right?
2: Exactly. So um, uh, Lawrence Malloy made made this um, library repo dash available so that you can you can track uh, the metrics about you know get, that give a, a clear indication of the health of of the uh, project. You got your open issues over any time frame. Uh, this this actually captures it, you know, uh, with within the time range that the user specifies. So how many items were open? How many issues are open? How many closed in that time frame? Still open, and um, it'll give you a much better feel for the the level of maturity and 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 uh, activity. Um, yeah, th- this for is cool.
0: That. Yeah like how long issues have been setting their open or um, total number of open issues over time The like how fast are they being closed versus being opened versus unassigned. Yeah. All those kinds of things are really important. Another one probably in here somewhere. I just haven't seen it yet is uh, the number of PRs that are open. Like a real red flag to me is I go to a project and there's, you know, significant number of PRs that are both open and maybe even not responded to, and they've been there for like six months. You're like, okay, whoever's working on this, they've kind of lost the love for it. <laughs> you
2: know? yeah. yeah, yeah, and uh, cool. yeah, and tying it together, it's it's uh, might uh, be the signal of where you need code reviews if you're <laughs> if you're stuck
0: somewhere. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, that's basically what a PR is. Is like a. It's waiting on a code review, more or less. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, this is really cool, and I think it'll it'll help people who create repos or, or create projects make sure that their repo is getting you know, sort of the health of what they're doing. But then also for people who are new or new to a project, they could quickly look at it and go, "Uh, red flags or you know, green flags? Which is it?" Yeah.
2: Yeah. Certainly, if you're doing the the, the things that are making your pro your your it's all part of transparency. This is mm-hmm. this is we're we're the real deal over here on on this team. Yeah, and they and the even have a cool
0: it. little categorization bar chart of the types of issues that are open, like feature request versus of um, good first issue versus bugs and so on. That's cool, so so, Ryan. What do you think?
1: Uh, well, I, I guess I I don't know if you covered this already, but I'm a little lost. Um, is this a service or is it something I add to my repo? Do you know,
0: I think it's something you run. You point it at a repo and you run it. Okay, that's that's my understanding. I, I yeah, don't totally. Yeah, I haven't yeah. used it, but I believe so. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's a command, a CLI. Oh, okay. Thing, so you just point I it know. at like some some GitHub repo, and you say, "Uh, tell me how they're doing. <laughs> what I want to depend on this thing? Yes or no?
1: No, I think that's cool. I like it.
0: Yeah. You know what else is cool? Sponsors sponsors that keep (laughs) us going. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. And Linode is very cool because uh, not only are they sponsoring the show, but they're giving uh, everyone a bunch of credit, $100 credit for uh, just using our link. And you know, if you want to build something on Kubernetes, you want to build some virtual servers or something like that, here you go. So you can simplify your infrastructure and cut your cloud bills in half with Linode's Linux virtual machines. Develop, deploy, and scale your modern applications faster and easier. And whether you're working on a personal project or some of those larger workloads really should be thinking about something affordable and usable and just focused on the job like linode so as i said you'll get hundred dollars free credit so be sure to use the link in your podcast player you got data centers around the world Um, it's the same pricing no matter where you are Sign up tell them where your customers are and you want to create your stuff there and that's pay the same price you also get 24 7 365 human support Oh my gosh! I'm working on another some something else with someone else, and this would be so appreciated right now. But not, <laughs> and if it was a Linode, they'd be helping me out. But oh my gosh! Uh, don't get me on a rant about uh, other things. Anyway, do so you can choose shared or dedicated compute, and scale the price with your need, and so on, and use your hundred dollars credit even on S3 compatible storage. How about that? You could you know use boto <laughs> boto three and the type annotations that change where it's going and point it over there. So yeah, if it runs a Linode. All right, if it runs on Linux, it runs in Linode. So use pythonbytes.fm slash Linode. Click the create free account button to get started. So uh, Brian, I'm not covering two topics this week like normal. You're not? Because, no, because I have so uh, many. I, I can't get... even possibly deal with it. So it's all about extra, 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 extra. Hear all about it. Okay. The first one, um, you may know what a CVE is. If it applies to your software, you don't like that. So um, this sounds more scary than I believe it is, but let me just do a quick little uh, statement here, A reading from uh, nist.gov. Python 3 up through 391, which was the latest version of Python until five days ago, has a buffer overflow in PyCRGrepper. Types, uh, which may lead to remote code execution. Hmm. Re- remote code execution sounds bad. That sounds like the internet taking my things and my data and other bad stuff when you're accepting a floating point number. Oh, wait a minute. Uh, a floating point number, like I might get at a JSON API, somebody posts some data and here's my floating point number, but this one hacks my Python web app with remote code execution. That sounds bad, right? Yeah. Yeah. Now, it turns out the way it has to be used is like it's, it's a very narrow thing. It shouldn't send people's like hair on fire running like, I've got to update the server, right? <laughs> but you should still probably update this. So what do I do? I log into the various servers, Linux servers, Ubuntu, latest version of Ubuntu that I want. And I say, oh my goodness, I heard about this. Please uh, update, you know, do an apt update. There better be a update for Python 3. Oh no, no. There's no update for Python 3. In fact, it's still running 385 where this was fixed in 388 or something like that and a week's gone by and there's still no update for python on ubuntu by default now what i can do is i can go to this like place that seems semi-official but not really official called dead snakes and add that as a a package manager endpoint for apt. but i don't really want to do that either that sounds like maybe even worse than (laughs) running old python so that sends me down item number two of my of my extra 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 and that is building Python from source on Ubuntu <laughs> <laughs> because uh, I, I really don't want to be running the old Python in production, even if it is unlikely, you know, you unlikely trust
1: yourself over dead snakes. OK,
0: I well, no, what I originally wanted to do, maybe, yes, but originally what I wanted to do was use Pyenv. Because Pi and V lets you install all sorts of different versions, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the only one available that was three nine was three nine one, which was the one with the bug still. Ah. And then locally, I use Homebrew on my machine, and it just updated yesterday, I think it was. Uh, But it it was a little bit behind, but that's updated. So yeah, I guess I do. Um, Anyway, so I found a cool article that walks you through all the building, the stuff. And then uh, the thing that makes me willing to try this and trust this, but also related to the next extra, 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 is you can go, instead of doing make install, which is the compile stuff, takes a while, but then magic python comes out the other side. You can say make alt install and what it'll do is it'll install the version of python under like a version name. So I can type python 3.9 and get python 3.92 with no vulnerabilities. But if I just type python or python3 it's just the system one. So that one didn't seem too dangerous to. Me. Oh yeah. Yeah. And then I just create a virtual environment for my stuff that runs on the server. Python 3.9-m, V-E-N-V, create that, and then off it goes. And then it's just running this this one from here. So uh, pretty good. Uh, that worked out quite well. So anyway, I've been doing that for a week and the world hasn't crashed or blown up or anything. So apparently this works. Good. one has Yeah, one heads up though is like, I have a bunch of machines that are all the same version of Linux. They all seem to have different dependencies and ways of dealing with this. Like one said, oh, the SSL module is not installed as a system library, like apt install, libssl type thing. Another one, it had that, but but... but it didn't have some other thing, some other aspect that I forgot. But like, they all seem to have different stuff that you also got to add in. So that was a little bit um, wonky in the beginning, but it's all good now. All right. That's extra number two. Um, Extra number three really probably should have preceded that because to make all that work, I wanted to make sure that I had it just right. And so I wanted to do this on Ubuntu uh, 20.04 LTS. And yet... I cannot run docker which is be would exactly the place where you would do this sort of thing to test it out I couldn't do docker on my apple M1 Oh
1: no okay
0: now docker says it runs Docker says you can run Apple uh, Docker prototype on your M1, but I've installed it, and all it does is sit there and say starting, 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 starting indefinitely, and it will never run. Um, I've uninstalled it. I've done different versions of it. like It just won't run. Um, people who are listening said, oh, what you got to do is you probably installed Parallels or this other thing, and it caused this problem, and you could fix it this way. Like, nope, the problem isn't there because I didn't install any of those things, and I can't change it. So long story <laughs> short, I uh, go ahead.
2: No, I was just laughing.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And so what I ended up doing is I saw a really cool trick. Trick, Not trick. Technique. I put this in the show notes. You can just say uh, basically two lines on the command line prompt or to uh, docker to say you know what if you want to just do docker stuff don't do it here do it over there and so i have my intel uh macbook pro that can that's running uh ubuntu in a virtual machine so i just turned that on and i just said docker context create that thing over there and then docker context use and after that every docker command without thinking about it remember it just automatically runs over on that machine and i know it's working because my mac one uh, my Mac M1 Mini is super quiet; you never hear it or anything. But when I work with Docker, I can hear the thing grinding away over in the corner. So that's—I know it's working. <laughs> All right, really quick—I know I'm running low on time. The last one is people have heard me whinge on about Dependabot and how it's such a pain. And I'm sure they're thinking, like, "Oh, Michael, why are you whinging about this? Why are you like just complaining? You know, it's—it can't be that bad." Yeah. So look what is on the screen here: Dependabot merge conflict with itself like so these are the things i have to do on monday morning i have to log in and it says <laughs> there's a merge conflict Dependabot put cryptography equal equal three four six when it had unchanged for months cryptography equal equal three dot four dot three it's like though it's one line it mer it's it's conflicting with itself. Like this is crazy. So anyway, this is not a big deal, but uh, people are like, why does Michael keep complaining about dependent and merges? Like, <laughs> cause I have to go and like the one line. It changes merges with itself. Like this is not productive. All right. Oh, no, we're not looking at that one yet. That's for later. All right, I guess that's it. Oh, final shout out though. I'll put this in the link in the show notes. Anthony Shaw, along with one of his coworkers, whose name I'm sorry, I forgot, built a GitHub bot that will automatically merge all those things for you, For specifically for Dependabot. So I'll oh, cover that more cool. later when he writes it up, but he did a like little shout out about it, Twitter. So I'll link to that since it's related. Yeah. Whew, that was a lot of extras.
1: Yeah, well, I got a short one. It's an Good. extra tool also. So it's also <laughs> about Docker. So
0: yeah, yeah, this is quite related. Nice follow on.
1: So uh um Josh Peak suggested um and I'm not sure what he was listening to but he, he just, or just wondering if we'd heard about it um that if one of the things people talk about with testing is whether or not they should uh, mock or stub act, activities to the database. And even if um, and then, I've, you know, I've talked with a lot of people about that. And even if you've got a database that's um, uh, that has in memory setup, so you can you can configure it to be in memory during your testing and stuff. It's still a different configuration. So uh, one of the suggestions that we've gotten from a lot of, lot of people is stick your database in a Docker container and right. then test it. So uh, and then Josh Peake suggested this uh, library called testcontainers-python. And this is slick. I mean, this thing really is. Uh, you've got, you just install this thing and you've, you can, so it covers, what, Selenium grid containers, standalone containers. Uh, MySQL database containers, MySQL, MariaDB, Neo4j, Oracle DB, Postgres, My- Microsoft SQL Server even, wow. And then just normal Docker containers. Yeah, but- it also
0: ha- even does uh, MongoDB, even though it's not listed. I saw oh, really? some of the examples that had Mongo as well.
1: Oh, that's great. I was, I was curious about that. So after you install this thing, you can just, it provides context managers. It probably has other stuff too. I didn't read all of it. But this is just really not that much code to create a... Uh, a Docker container that you can throw your connect and fill nice. put your dummy data in or whatever. But I love it. It's like,
0: uh, I want to, I want to use Docker to help test stuff in isolation, but I don't want to know about Docker or be able to use Docker or care about Docker. Right.
1: Right. So we're no Python. What it gives you is, um, it gives you a SQL alchemy friendly URL, um, that you can, uh, just, um, uh, gr- just connect to your, connect my SQL alchemy or whatever but you you just get this URL out. So if you have if you're configuring your where your database is through a URL, um, that you can throw that in whatever configuration, environment or variable, or whatever, and test as you run with that. And it's pretty yeah, neat.
0: That's so cool. Yeah. Just with MySQL container, give it some connection string you want, or some um, like host uh, address, or whatever, as MySQL, and then you just off you go, right? Just the Docker thing exists while the context is open.
1: Yeah. And I didn't specifically see any documentation in here talking about PyTest, but if anybody's curious, um, I'm sure it'll work with that because uh, even if you have to write your yeah. own. Uh, fixture. You can you can return a context manager items in a fixture, so that'll work.
0: For yeah, me. yeah, yeah. Super cool. You know, uh, I was that's exactly what I was thinking when you were talking about as a Pytest fixture that maybe loads it and then. Fills it with test data and then hands it off to the test or something like that.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Greg, what do you think? I like it. Yeah, it's neat, right? Hey, uh, I got a quick, a quick follow up from the last one. Magnus on the live stream asks, "Will using Pydantic mitigate the floating point overflow bug?" Um, using Pydantic definitely makes exchanging JSON data really nice and does some validation, but I suspect it probably doesn't. That said, uh, you know, people really wish I could find this conversation. There was a conversation with Dustin Ingram and I think Brett Cannon talking about this and how it's really not that severe because I believe you got to take the input and directly hand it off at the C layer in Python, like passing it to float parentheses in python i don't think is enough to trigger it you've got to like go down into something like numpy or something super low level so it's not as dangerous but you know there's a lot of things that you see later so who knows what's going on down there um, so that's why i'm building from source for the moment anyway i should also throw out there really quick i was also just frustrated that the latest version i can get is 38 which is over a year old and i was like why am i on a year old version of python when i could just you know take an hour and be on the new version of python there's more to it than just the bug all right uh, i guess uh, greg we will throw it back to you for this last one I don't have a ground yeah it, I don't think. yeah
2: thank you um the context on this was i had been in in uh data science in pretty much the proprietary world so proprietary software using uh sql server and tableau and uh cognos and those different tools we started noticing we're a bay area-based company we started noticing that um customers were leaving that proprietary world and going to uh python and that's that. Actually, is one of the things that led me to to myself to start going in and understanding the industry. And in just in the time that I've been with Talk Python, which is a bit just a, a shy short of a year now, I'm seeing um, a relentless march towards more and more adoption in um, the Python ecosystem for businesses that had traditionally always relied on proprietary software, and uh, yeah. and it's it's reaching top of mind. Uh, to, to uh, a level that i i didn't expect that it was going to happen so fast you know you followed the the jeffrey moore the uh adoption you know the early yeah. adopters and then hitting main street this one is moving really fast um we're seeing like uh some of the largest com- co- corporations in the world moving looking to, at python as a means of looking moving away from excel even and um oh yeah uh it's 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 just it's reaching top of mind because more and more decision makers are hearing from their technology teams that they can deliver solutions at unprecedented price performance. And, uh, that's always, well, I mean, talk.
0: you weren't, you were talking this realm, like we should talk Gartner, right? So there was a Gartner study, um, about why companies are moving to open source. And it was really interesting because a lot of people say, well, you're going to move to open source because it doesn't cost money, so it helps the bottom line. And so many of the companies that were interviewed by Gartner were like, it has nothing to do with price. I mean, yeah. price, it, yeah. it's a benefit. We'll take, not paying less, that's fine. But yeah. this is about higher quality, higher visibility, and so on. And, and I think that's a real interesting inherent advantage in the community.
2: It's right, crazy. and in the, in the case of, um, of Excel, you're hitting up against... Uh, limitations in excel you know the size limitations most notably and now you're able to to handle it with it happens to be open source the solution but you really the pain was (laughs) the limitations and uh, Uh, now you're able to do without it
1: there's got to also be maintenance too because we i mean sometimes i've heard Perl referred to as a a write-only language but (laughs) but it's got regular expressions yeah yeah it's it's got nothing over trying to edit somebody else's spreadsheet full of macros right Um, oh yeah yeah if they put
0: some vba in there it's the kiss of death for sure yeah that's like those are like go-to statements it's insane
2: (laughs) yeah and uh so what we're seeing is you know even though it it feels like there's uh, heavy adoption uh it's still relatively small inroad compared to what we're going to see in the future um it's like this um water rapidly collecting (laughs) behind a a weak dam and and, um, uh, we've seen that happen in the industry before
0: I think that's a really great thing to highlight, Greg. I I talked with Mahmoud Hashemi, who at the time was at PayPal, about Python soft Python for enterprise software development. As I think this is the fourth episode at TalkPython. Python. It was certainly right at the beginning in 2015. Yeah, I remember that one? Yeah, it was. Thanks, and uh, it was like a big question. Like, well, does it make sense? Should people be using Python for these company stuff? Does that make it like now? It just seems. Yeah, it seems just like so obvious. Exactly. Uh, There's one thing I I was actually going to cover this and I'll cover it again uh, in more depth because I had so many extras already. So I I made room. But one of the interesting things that Google came on to sponsor the PSF at, they say, they probably don't say this is like a friendly one, but there was another uh, article. This is just the sort of press release from the PSF. But they came on and they're now sponsoring um, the PSF as a visionary sponsor, which I think is over 300,000 in uh, terms of hmm. uh, how much there's and they're also sponsoring a core developer particularly for things around like security and pypi and whatnot so a lot of interesting stuff i'll come back to that later but uh in, in another show but yeah uh, seems worth giving a little shout out about that yep and then a quick comment greg uh from magnus uh, i read an article about the re uh the reinsurance industry also moving from excel to python yeah, yeah i can imagine awesome thank you magnus yeah all right uh I guess that's it for our items. How huh, Brian? Uh, how about some extras?
1: Well, I I know that you've been using um, you've been using Firefox for a while, right?
0: I, I did notice over on uh, your stream that looks a little Firefoxy over there. What happened, man?
1: Yeah. So the the thing <laughs> that convinced me uh, is this announcement they they just released Firefox eighty six and it's got this uh, enhanced cookie protection and I don't understand the, the gist of it, but mostly it's it seems like um, they just said you know whatever site you're on they can you because you know sometimes i've heard people say i turn off cookies well like sites don't work without because some of them just don't yeah you want to log in well you're going to need a cookie i'm sorry yeah so (laughs) um Oh, or just saving stuff. I don't. There's times where I just don't. Yeah. There's nothing private there. I don't want to log in every time, but I don't want you to share it with other people either. So this 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 enhancement is just uh, keep the sites cookies to themselves. So they have like a cookie jar or a storage area for cookies that's individual to each site, and you can save as many as you want for your site, and then the uh, another site gets another one. And there's the the, the obvious like you were saying login stuff I, I used you know different login providers there is an exception for that so you can you can use uh, login providers and it, it allows that but these are these are non-tracking cookie uses so yeah
0: anyway. I, I'm super excited about this as well basically if you were to go to cnn.com and then you were to go I'm not for sure about this right but likely then you were to go to the verge and then you're going to go to chewy.com and buy something for your pet like very likely they're using some ad network that's put a cookie that knows you did that sequence of events and oh by the way you're logged in as so and so over on that one so on all the other sites we now know that so and so is really interested in chew toys for a medium-sized dog but a puppy not a <laughs> not a folk <full> cro- <laughs> right you know and that's it gets to the point where people think oh well all these things are listening to us on our phone but they just like track us so insanely deeply yep. and so the idea is huh yeah, let that third-party thing, let it set a cookie. But when they get to Chewy.com from CNN.com and they ask for the cookies there, like, yeah, sure, you can have your third-party cookie, but it's a completely unrelated brand new one as if you, like, deleted your history yeah. and started over, which is beautiful. I'm I'm super excited about this as well. Yeah. And uh, Robert Robertson says that CNN better not try to sell him doggy toys. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you, man. I'm with you. Doggy toys from the Doggy Toys site. News from the news site. Sometimes they're hard to tell apart, but you never know.
2: Stay in your lane. <laughs> Stay,
0: in your lane, Stay in your lane. All right. Uh yeah. So that was the one thing you wanted to cover, right? Yeah. Yeah. I had did my extra, 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 extra. So I've already covered that. So I feel like uh Greg, anything you want to throw out there before we uh move on to a joke?
2: Uh no, it can't get in the way of a joke. No, I know. This is good.
0: So sometimes we we find an interesting joke or a funny thing out there, and sometimes we strike gold, right? Like Brian, high jokes. I mean pipx install pi joke come on like the cli is now full of dad developer jokes well i kind of feel like i got one of those here as well so there's this place called um uh, article called 56 funny code comments that people actually wrote (laughs) nice i don't want to go through 56 but i feel like we may revisit this so i want to go through four here okay i linked the real article in in there but i pulled them out separately so i'm (laughs) showing on the screen here like I'll, i'll read the first one (laughs) <laughs> and we can take turns reading. There's only four, here, four or five here. <laughs> but the first one is, it's a big like header at the top of a, a function in a comment. It says, dear maintainer, once you're done trying to optimize this routine and you've realized what a terrible mistake that was, please increment the following counter as a warning to the next guy. <laughs> Total hours wasted here equals 73. 73.
2: <laughs> <laughs> is that awesome or what? Yeah.
1: Uh, uh, yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> That's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah, I've had I've had code that where every like the next like one out of five developer that gets to it says, Oh, I think we can make this cleaner and mm-hmm. they don't. Yeah.
0: Nope. They just make it stop working, then they have to fix it, and then it goes back like it was. <laughs> all right, Brian, you wanna do the next one?
1: Sure. Um sometimes I believe compiler ignores all my comments. Huh?
0: <laughs> that that's a comment. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> I don't even <laughs> Sometimes
0: I believe the compiler ignores all your comments. Like, probably all the time, hopefully.
2: <laughs> oh, this next one's my favorite, yeah. All right, Greg, yeah, um, that was you. Greg. Drunk, drunk, fix later. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I can totally see that one.
2: Honesty, right. honesty.
0: Um. Also, this one is, is nice. Probably this came from Stack Overflow, a <laughs> partial level of understanding. The comment is, magic, do not touch.
1: Yeah, definitely, yeah. Oh. Brian, you
0: want to round us out with this last one? Yeah, because last sometimes one. the best part about comments is if they're accurate or not.
1: Is they're wrong. Yeah. Um, I've heard people refer to comments as future lies. Um, and this one uh, is there's a routine called uh, it's a Boolean, it returns a Boolean. It's called is available. Re- and it, has, it returns false. It's just a single statement return false with a comment that says always returns true. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I'm telling you, there's going to be a lot of good jokes coming from this uh, this article here. Nice. so Yeah, pretty good. All right. Well, thank you, Brian, as always. Greg, thank you for being here. Thank, thank you for having me. Yeah, it was definitely great. And thanks, everyone, for listening. See you all later.